probably over 90% of people are so focused on the deal as being the most important aspect of the business as opposed to the team. Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to Weiss Advice. I'm your host, Yona Weiss. Thank you all for joining me today. It is a pleasure to be hosting Ashley Wilson. Ashley, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to tell you a little about Ashley. I've known Ashley for a few years now. She's the co-founder of Bar Down Investments, which, you know, she's been in the real estate industry doing many different things for, you know, over a decade. She's been involved in over 30 million in multifamily properties consisting of over 450 units that she currently has under management. She and her father, Tom, also have a very successful high-end flipping business in Pennsylvania where they actually flip houses. It's called House It Look. LLC. And so they have several million dollars of transactions annually. So when she's not working, she loves to spend time with her family, her husband, two daughters, and loves to ride horses. And that's pretty impressive, you know? So you have uh, horses on your property that you actually own? No, we actually uh, board the horse. I have one horse now. Um, I board him at a stable about a 30 minute drive from our house. Okay. So you want to, whenever you have time, you get to go down there. <laughs> Whenever I have time. Right. It doesn't sound like there's too much of it. With uh... There's not much going around right now. But yes, I try to squeeze it in, whether it's getting there at 5 a.m. or you know shooting over in the middle of the day if I time block something in. But it's definitely a juggling act to get over there. Yeah, I can imagine. I and mean, it sounds like you have a juggling act. I mean, you have a flipping business that uh, you run with your father and you've been doing that for quite a while. And... You're working on multifamily deals, both in the managing of those properties and investor relations. I imagine you deal with that aspect as well. What would you say is the the most challenging aspect of this whole balancing act? I think the challenge, I get asked often, how can I run two completely different types of businesses, one on the single family side and one on the multifamily side. And I think the challenge is learning the business to the level that you can systematize it and put processes in place that help you then either expand that business or consider growing another business. Mm -hmm. That's really been the challenge. So getting to that level and then being able to make the transition if that's what you want to do. Right. So you obviously took time to build those systems. Correct. Do you have any tips in terms of building those systems or prioritizing? Like, you know, what are the most important steps when you're starting out? I would like to give two tips. First and foremost is most people don't think of putting systems in place until they need them. And that's the wrong approach. You should put them in place prior to needing them so you can grow faster and also work more efficiently. So the first step I would recommend is while you're starting something new, write down 
the exact process of what you're doing. So it can be duplicated by someone else, Mm. whether it's due to wanting to expand or due to a personal situation that pulls you away from the business. You have to have a playbook that someone can replicate what you're doing. So I would highly recommend the first step, writing down what you're doing step by step. And then the second piece of advice I would give is that that's a living document. It's not a set it and forget it document. Mm -hmm. It's something that needs to be constantly modified, changed because the one guarantee in life is that things always change. So like things changing, your processes need to change and adapt as well. So ensure that you have flexibility. You do not take your finger off the pulse and continue to reference those documents and check in and modify them and make sure that you're always increasing your efficiency. So are you bringing on, I mean, team members at certain points, meaning now that you've documented, you set up those systems, you know, it can be duplicated or replicated at that point. Are you able to teach those systems to someone else or at what point do you find it necessary to to even consider that? I think when you become an expert on a particular topic, you don't have to be an expert on everything, but on the specific topic that you're responsible for, when you become an expert on it, Mm -hmm. or at least proficient enough that you can educate someone else on it, you record the way that you're doing a specific system or process, create the manuscript that supplements that process, and then that's able to be delegated to someone else so that you can work on a higher returning task. So a lot of people speak on what is your time worth? And I like to think of it as how much can I continue to increase my value? So if I continue to put myself in a situation where I'm only working on $20 an hour tasks or minimum wage tasks, I know some people like to reference, I know $20 isn't minimum wage, but I'm just trying to give a (laughs) reference here for people in all different spectrums of their investing game or life or business game. But what you want to do is when you go to replace someone, it costs you say $15. And before you were thinking that it was costing you $20, that frees up time. There's a $5 differential, a Delta there that you're actually gaining so that you can realize it through working on a higher level task. So let's say for example, that now you're working on a $50 an hour task, meaning that if you brought someone in to replace you, it would cost $50. So if you have the capacity to continually bring people on, then you can continually increase your value. Gotcha. What's fascinating to me is that I tried out fix and flipping a little bit and you've been extremely successful with it. You know, I think there was a lot of people that try it out and fail miserably at fixing and flipping. For me, it was dealing with the processes, dealing with the people involved, like having the right team, having contractors, you know, who was trustworthy, et cetera. You know, obviously you've been successful with that and you're continuing doing that. What are some, maybe some tips, some advice for someone? Because that's obviously a field that a lot of people get drawn into and you're doing both. And I really love the multifamily side of things more, but you've been successful in the fix and flip side. So I'm curious to understand what, maybe some advice to, to someone who's starting out that, how to, uh, some pitfalls that you might want to watch out for. I think flipping is the gateway drug to real estate investing. Mm. So it makes it very sexy. It makes people want to get into real estate investing and the avenue that seems 
the lowest barrier to entry is flipping. I mean, some people can make an argument that wholesaling is right there, if not an easier way to get into real estate investing. But let's say for argument's sake, you want to pursue the flipping side. Over 90% of first time flippers lose money on their first deal. Mm -hmm. And the average profit that someone makes on their first deal when you do make a profit is less than $5,000. I've read some statistics on this. Businesses in general, um, I forget what the statistic is, but I think it's something around 80% of businesses don't make it to the five-year marker. I'm confident that flipping is probably less than 50% of that. Just knowing, you know, people track record like within this space. And fortunately my father and I have surpassed that. So here's the secret. The secret is that just like 90% of first time flippers fail, probably over 90% of people are so focused on the deal as being the most important aspect of the business as opposed to the team. Mm -hmm. The deal is important, but the team is what makes the difference. And honestly, you could say that about any business and it's not limited to flipping. So it could be multifamily, it could be outside of real estate. Your team is really what will determine your success. So if you look at the three components of any real estate business or any business in general, you have product, you have capital, and you have your team. Mm -hmm. And there's an abundance of product out there. Right. It's an all on how you purchase it. And in terms of capital and financing, there's an abundance of capital and financing out there. And it's just a matter of getting your capital at the lowest cost. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, in my opinion, the most important is your team. So I chose to partner with my father. He's a general contractor with over 40 years of experience of renovating homes and you know, a lot of people will tune out and say, oh, well, she just had this advantage because it was her father. But I think you're missing why I was successful. Even though I did partner with my father and we already had built in trust and a relationship, you know, all of those other important factors of a partnership. Also look at the fact that I partnered with someone who has the experience Mm -hmm. and the knowledge, but no longer wants to physically do the work anymore. And that's what makes it advantageous. So I always recommend to people who want to get into flipping that don't focus so much on having a home run on your first deal. Focus on building a really successful team. Go to contractors who are getting ready to retire Mm -hmm. and partner with them. Contractors who are getting ready to retire, like my father, their businesses survive through multiple recessions. There's a lot to be said about that. Mm -hmm. You know, in the last run up in our economy, we've had over 10 years of incredible job growth and economic growth. So there's a lot of contractors around. In fact, there are more contractors probably than work that's around. So, you know, people are a dime a dozen, but in terms of sticking power, they're probably not, I don't want to say it as a blanket, you know, they're not the perfect partner, but I think it might have a greater chance of success if you partner with someone who's been around multiple market cycles, has a, you know, stable full of other contractor resources that they can get jobs done. So when you run into a snag with one, you just go to the next one. And that's what we've been able to do. So are there any other team members that are essential Besides for obviously, you know, doing a flipping business, you need a contractor, you need to, you know, be running the business. So what other team members are are necessary? 
There are so many team members. I mean, we could probably <laughs> spend an hour alone just talking about team members. Obviously, that capital partner right. is critical. Mm-hmm. Cost of capital is what makes it more advantageous. So in terms of your chance of success, your chance of success is determined by your team. Your chance of profit is not only determined by your team, but also determined by your cost of capital. Everything in life comes down to what you're securing your capital at what rate. So, you know, there's a surge in purchasing of houses when the interest rates go down. That is the same thing in terms of the business. If you can get your interest rate on your capital to come down, because even if you're in a position where you can finance them initially yourself, you'll get to a bandwidth of needing to bring in other capital. And furthermore, you know, I think it's more advantageous if you have the capacity to invest your own capital in your flipping business, why not diversify, put your capital somewhere else and build into your business structure you know, getting that capital lent to you at an Mm. interest rate so that your capital is invested passively somewhere else, but you're leveraging a partner on the equity side to fund whatever investment you're doing. There's just a lot of different ways you can use the power of leverage, but ultimately you want to get that cost of capital down. So having multiple financial partners gives you the most advantageous opportunity, I guess, to be successful. Gotcha. So let me just kind of switch tracks here a little bit because I find it fascinating. You know, we're talking about how the businesses in general aren't successful, right? Over a five-year period and flipping business, people start out and they crash and burn is what really happens a lot of times. You know, when you started out, were you like successful right off the bat or did you have some challenges, some bad deals that you had to overcome? I think when people use the word successful, it means something totally different to so many different people. Oh, I think so. That's the, the last question we're going to get to here. But you're, 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 that's exactly right. And we've we've heard it on this show, you know, dozens of times that it means something different to everyone. But sorry for interrupting you. Oh no worries. So you know, there might be some listeners who are listening to say, okay, success is determined by a monetary amount, right? So on our first deal, full transparency, we made sixty six thousand dollars in profit. Would you consider that a successful deal? My father did. And this is an interesting story on perspective. So my father considered it to be an extremely successful venture. And he, you know, looked at the statistics and said, oh my gosh, we're so successful. You know, this is fantastic. I looked at it and I said, this was a failure. And the reason why is because my father and I have two different perspectives, which is perfect in a partnership. That's what you want. You want two different perspectives. His perspective was success is driven off of a financial indicator. My definition of success, we'll we'll get to that on the last question, but in terms of this particular situation, I looked at the business of it. The business of it was, it took us nine and a half months to rehab the house from close to close, which is how I do one of my metrics Mm -hmm. from acquisition to sale. That's what I consider close to close. It took us 12 months. So we split the profits 50-50. If we are going to use flipping to replace our W-2 or whatever else we were doing previously, right? Is $33,000 enough for each of us to live off of? The answer is no. Okay. So in my opinion, this wasn't a successful venture. 
it was a right. maybe a good beta test, but in terms of whether or not our first property was successful in the sense of it being a successful launch of a business, no, it was not. And when I brought this to my dad's attention, he honestly said that he was going to quit. He was so mad <laughs> that I said it wasn't successful. But when I broke it down to him and explained why I thought it was a failure, he actually saw it from my perspective and said, okay, how do we get this to be successful? And then since then we turned it into, you know, a six figure business for both of us. So, you know, we're making a minimum of over $200,000 in profit through the company each year to replace, you know, the previous income we had or whatever. But that's the difference is how do you really define success? And when you look at a business, you really need to look to see whether the business can be sustainable for a long period of time. You have to look at it in terms of, are you creating another job, which flipping is often looked at as you're just creating another job. So there's a lot of just, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. Yeah, sure. And just kind of to switch tracks back for a second, because you know, obviously you at a certain point, even with all the flipping, the whole business and, you know, creating a successful business, you kind of transitioned into multifamily as a more active role of what, you know, what you're doing, what you're spending your time in. And I'm always curious this question because it's something that I deal with on a daily basis, but was the tax advantages part of that decision? A hundred percent. 100%. So 100%. Let's break that down. What does that mean? Yeah. So on the flipping side, we're holding the properties for less than one year. So we're paying at the highest tax rate that we could possibly pay at for our profits and not having a place that we can either invest our capital or invest our gains to have uh, tax deferred strategies. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you're doing a lot of work for nothing. So let me put this in perspective. We did four houses one year. Okay. And I can't remember the exact number, but I remember looking at our taxes that year and saying, we flipped one property for free, even though it said we made whatever 70,000 profit or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. We literally did that for free. Because all of that went to taxes. I mean, you did it for Uncle Sam. Exactly. Yes. And then silent partner. Yeah. And then another realization too, I mean, I guess I'm a slow learner because I didn't like, you know, take that jump on that moment. I think it took me a little while to realize it is when my husband was working in his previous profession, actually this wasn't real estate related. So I I guess I can say maybe I wasn't a slow learner because this is kind of what a got us into real estate. I had a very high paying job in pharmaceuticals and I was very fortunate to be in that situation. I worked very hard to be in that situation and I worked very hard while I was in that situation. And, you know, my husband was making a solid salary as well. And when we did our taxes that year, my entire salary over six figures went to taxes. And that was just so heart-wrenching. And that's how we initially got into real estate. 
And then from there, I guess, like I said before, we're a slow learner to figure out which ones are the, <laughs> the most advantageous tax strategies in terms of like setting yourself up well. But what I like to parallel this to when I'm talking to different investors is saying, imagine playing Monopoly with someone and they know all the rules, but you don't. You don't even know what the point of the game oh, is. Yeah. You just roll the dice and they tell you what you do next. Mm-hmm. What are the chances that you're going to win that game? Probably slim to none, right? right. They're going to know to buy Boardwalk. They're going to know to buy all the railroads. They're going to know, you know, all of these different things. They're going to know to buy every time they land. Mm-hmm. They're going to know to put hotels on faster, you know, than just the houses. But to me, when you are not leveraging the tax system in terms of the tax codes and the advantages, you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage. And I think, you know, partnering with organizations like yours, um, talking with your, you know, CPA or financial planner, as long as the financial planner is not driven by certain investments for you to invest in. Mm-hmm. I really think that puts you at an advantage to stretch your dollar as far as possible. Absolutely. And, you know, just a little more clarity on that for our listeners who who don't understand and what different types of real estate businesses have different tax situations or, you know, looked at differently in the tax code. And as Ashley mentioned, being a house flipper, being active in that, that's the highest tax rate possible. And it also does not come, especially if you're flipping and holding for under a year or buying in order to sell, you don't get the depreciation deductions that come along with regular buy and hold investment properties. So taking advantage of those depreciation deductions on larger commercial investment properties is really probably the key to success. And to couple that, I you know, often talk to a lot of people like yourself who have multiple streams of income within real estate. And they may have a flipping, they may do some buying holes, they may do development and other things, but they want to make sure that they always have long-term investment properties that are creating those huge depreciation deductions, those deferred tax situations where you can cover your other income and make sure that you're, uh, you know, covering your basis, so to speak, and not, not giving to your silent partner, Uncle Sam, you know, any more than he actually needs. Yeah, it was a huge game changer for us when we got into multifamily. Huge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Definitely the checks were a lot smaller and some were non-existent at all <laughs> that we had to write. Exactly. So that is really an advantage that if you're not exploiting that in real estate, I mean, why are you in real mm-hmm. estate? That's why you're in real estate. That's the number one reason people get into real estate is for the tax advantages. And just getting yourself there sooner, whether you're not in real estate yet, you really need to be in terms of, this is not like a gimmicky (laughs) asset class, you know, like a gimmicky investment. There's a reason why probably every wealthy person you know is in real estate and it's for these tax advantages. I mean, that is the number one thing in common if you speak to any real estate investor, you don't have to be in the same asset class, but right. people get it mm-hmm. in terms of the tax advantages. 100%. And I always say it has, you know, obviously we're talking about, you know, American taxes. I don't know what the tax systems in other countries are, but it's no coincidence whatsoever that probably over 80% of Congress are real estate investors, you know, have investments in real estate because they get it. And, you know, that may drive the defining of the tax code and the advantages that real estate has over other types of 
businesses, you know, call that lobbying, call that whatever you want, but it's the truth and reality of the, the country that we live in. So take advantage of it, learn more, educate yourself and make sure that you are, you know, diversifying so that you can cover your base and that you can keep the money that you're making. And I think that's, you know, a huge insight that you brought to our attention here, which is not even, you know, believe it or not, even though that's what we do, you know, the cost irrigation is a huge aspect to what we do. But on this podcast, we talk very seldomly about that. So I'm glad that we were able to kind of touch on that. I appreciate that. So Ashley, let's jump into the final four. Hey, before we get to the final four, I just want to tell you about streamlined podcasts. Okay. I could not have a podcast if I didn't work with streamlined podcasts. As simple as that. These guys are my go-to. They do all the editing of these audio pieces that you guys are hearing. And I really couldn't do anything without it. I literally tried to start a podcast for about a year and it was just daunting to me to spend time writing show notes, to do the audio recording, editing, taking out the ums, the ahs, the spaces, everything. These guys make it sound so crisp, so clear at such an affordable rate. And for my listeners and my listeners only, you're gonna be thrilled. If you're ever thinking of starting a podcast or you have a podcast, check them out at streamlinepodcasts.com. Set up a time to speak with them and use promo code WEISS, W-E-I-S-S, and you can get 20% off your first month if you do end up signing up with them. I guarantee you it's gonna be worth your while. The first question I have for you is what was the worst job that you ever had? Ooh, this is a good question. So I've been very fortunate that I've had some really tough jobs that have all taught me incredible lessons. I don't think I've ever had a job where, you know, I haven't learned something from what I was doing. I think in terms of the worst job I've ever had, it's, probably things where, you know, I had a lot of little jobs that the expectations of the people I was working for were a little bit just too extreme. So for example, I did this one job Mm -hmm. as a temp position. I was helping out a parent's family friend who had a business and I was only there for a few weeks. I was working another job and my parents pulled me off this job to, you know, work on this other business. And they gave me these manuals that were like the size of encyclopedias stacked on top of each other and four of them and asked me to be able to almost have them memorized within a couple days so I could take orders. So it was a company, it was actually a really cool company. It was an engineering company where they would create things. So anyone would call them. So for example, the Philadelphia zoo was a client and they needed heating rocks for one of their, you know, animal exhibits or something. So someone would call in Mm -hmm. and they would describe what they wanted. And then we would have to put together some sort of design with all these different components and everything. And keep in mind, Mm -hmm. I've never studied engineering I have since never studied engineering. I was never interested in engineering. I had no idea what I was doing. And the expectations were just very unrealistic, especially for a short period of time. I mean, those are the only types of things. I've had really difficult jobs, don't get me wrong, but I'm a type of person when you look back, you have to realize the value that that 
job taught you and that that was right. a step in the path to where I am today. So I'm very grateful even for that crazy job that I had, but also just to be mindful when you work with other people to know their perspective, where they're coming in from, if they're committed long-term or short-term, having realistic expectations so they can succeed. And you don't want people to fail, right? Um, because when they fail, you fail. So that to me was still a lesson that I learned. Sure. And I think it's a really valuable lesson here in perspective because, you know, what's called, you know, a bad job or what's, you know, worst job there. We have difficult jobs. We may have difficult, you know, situations in our lives, but overcoming them and learning the lessons from them, you know, even if it, you don't learn it the first time, you may learn it the next time. And even in looking back, you can definitely learn something from every situation. So I appreciate that. Um, what's a book that you've read that has given you a paradigm shift? I read a book in high school called Flatlands by Edwin Abbott. And Flatland really was a game changer for me. Mm. There are a few other books, obviously, since then. I'm sure a lot of people have referenced Rich Dad Poor Dad. Right, that was yes. also <laughs> a, a good one as well. Um, real estate focus, but in terms of life focus, Flatlands for me, what was really interesting about it was it talks about the world in different dimensions. It's a theology book. I read it in theology class mm. in high school. And what's interesting about it for me was how the mind operates. So if you're a single point or dot, you can't think in terms of shapes or dimensions. But if you're a line, you can think in terms of dots in a line. And if you're an object, you can think of lines and dots. And then a two dimension, you can think in lines, dots, and shapes, and it builds on itself. Right. The reason why I found that to be so profound is because I think the mind is an incredible just aspect of life. I mean, really understanding the way people think and the way they hmm. come up with ideas and the way they process information, the way they communicate. It really is so interesting to me. I was a um, psych major in undergrad and I took the neuro part of the distribution late in my you know, distribution requirements for psychology. I wish I had done it earlier because I would have switched to neuroscience. And I originally wanted to be a neuropsychologist because I just find the brain so fascinating. So to me, this was an early, you know, toes in water kind of mm -hmm. experience into that. And what I found how it applies to me every single day in my life is if I can fathom something, it's because it's a reality in my mind. It's not an illusion. It's not a dream. It's a reality that isn't realized yet. And that to me is what's so profound. So when people come to me and they tell me different ideas, or if I come up with different ideas, they're all possible. It's a matter of staying very focused and disciplined to know which ones are the ones you act upon. But to me, it's not a limitation of it can't happen. And that is why I find that book to just be wow. incredible. Oh, profound. Yeah. We'll have to check that one out. Um, what is a skill or talent that you would like to learn? I am really not good. At, it's normally when you're not good at something, that's what you want to learn how to do, right? I am really not good at like marketing and selling and I'm uncomfortable doing it. I think people can tell when they're around me that I'm very passionate and dedicated to real estate. And in terms of, you know, when I 
started the conversation with you about cost of capital and partnering with people. Mm-hmm. I think if I was better at, you know, having these buzzwords and being a little bit more salesy, I, I don't ever want to be salesy. I think people partner with me and invest with me because I'm authentic, but I do want to be able to present myself a little bit cleaner and just be able to speak more proficiently about what I'm doing. Just because when I'm in my own group of people who, who get me or even who get real estate, it's a no brainer. Like I come across very well, but in terms of someone who's not in real estate, I think it's hard for someone to understand what I'm doing because I'm just so passionate about the real estate side of it that I don't spend a lot of focus on like, okay, I need investors too. So sometimes that, sure. that can be challenging for me. Absolutely. And a lot of people talk about the, you know, the aspect of real estate being uh, and syndication, especially when you're dealing with investors and, and trying to, a lot of these you know, syndicators I've found have become like whatever you want, gurus or whatever, but educators because they find that just providing information and value to people will allow them to kind of assimilate that information and come to it on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, don't get me wrong, but I think you do a wonderful job in terms of the blogs and the articles Thank that you. you write, which are very, very well written. And, you know, believe it or not, that's a really strong part of, you know, becoming a, a salesperson or whatever that is. That's an aspect of it that is the educational aspect of it, which has so much value in it. So, yeah, marketing is huge. I know like Joe Fairless, who I'm a big fan of, talks a lot about in his uh, book, The Best Ever Syndication Book, about how it's a marketing business, really, more than anything else. It 100% is. I'm kind of the antithesis of that. I actually (laughs) promote that, for example, a lot of people invest with, and I'm not talking about Joe Fairless here because I think Joe Fairless is great and I love his book. It's one of the best books on multifamily. If you haven't read it, definitely pick it up. And that's why it's called the best (laughs) ever, right? But in terms of, you know, some other syndicators, I always argue that Would you invest with someone on a single family flip if they have no experience renovating? You wouldn't. You wouldn't put, you know, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars out there on a flip, but you extrapolate that to across a hundred plus units over three to five years, and you're like, sure, I'll throw in a hundred thousand dollars and you've never done a single renovation or managed one. Because we're going to outsource it to someone. Well, when you outsource it, you're paying a percentage of you know the cost of construction. So that's why I think like, to Joe's point, it is a marketing business. And I think if I was better, you know, like he's great at raising capital and he's really great at marketing and he has a team behind him to substantiate what he's saying. And I think there are a lot of people in the business who are really good at marketing, but don't have that, what what Joe has, you know? Exactly. So I've taken a different approach because a lot of people are taking the approach let's be a marketer first and figure it out after Mm. my approach from day one was I need to figure it out. I cannot talk on something I don't know. So I've spent years figuring out like the nitty gritty on how to operate these properties, because in my opinion, operations are the most important in multifamily, but during a downturn, they're the most important. And I think that like what we're going to see, you know, right now. Absolutely. And, and I want to just clarify for our listeners, you know, a lot of people are 
thinking, yeah, I also, you know, I want to spend years, you know, actually you're not talking about just years of, of learning about it. You're talking about years of learning on the job. I spent years learning about it before I spent years doing it, exactly. just to be clear. Right. So I spent probably three or four years learning about multifamily before I even got into multifamily. So collectively within multifamily, like five going on six years of the solid foundation of book knowledge and listening to podcasts and, you know, going to trainings and doing all these other things and then actually working in the business. So, and I think a lot of my experience on the renovation side, managing projects on flipping was transferable to, which is a whole separate, (laughs) you know, bucket that I'm not even like grouping in on, you know, the time I put into my education on multifamily. Awesome. So our fourth and final question for you is what does success mean to you? For me, success means freedom. It means the freedom to make my own decisions, to live my life on my own terms. And my whole life, all I've ever wanted was to be able to be there for my family. I grew up with a general contractor as a father, and my mom was very lucky to work in a business that allowed her the flexibility to go support my brother and I whenever we had something going on. We did not grow up in a you know very wealthy family. My parents both worked very, very hard during recessions. Even though my dad survived them, it was still a struggle. So we would go to like single family income almost at times, you know, or single parent, sorry, um, income. But what I gained from all of that was my parents' support of my brother and I never wavered. And that really had a huge impact on me. And that is why I have built the life that I built for myself. So I definitely consider myself successful and it's not due to a monetary amount that, you know, is either on my tax return or in my bank account. It's because if my daughter is sick, I just stay with her all day. If my, you know, other daughter wants to go to the park one day, like we just do it. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is. We just do it. And that to me is the definition of success. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ashley. Where can our listeners find you or get a hold of you? Absolutely. If they would like to. Yeah. Yep. Um, you can find me at badashinvestor.com or on Instagram at badashinvestor. Bad Ash Investor. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, play on words. I got the how's it look. So I had to follow up with that Ash Investor. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I like that. Oh, well, I really appreciate you taking your time here and, and spending that with us today. And any parting words you'd like to leave with our audience? Any advice? Well, anyone who is interested on the multifamily side, I'm doing a series with Bigger Pockets um, because I just recently got a property under contract. So I'm going to do a whole series on the walkthrough of everything from start to finish of due diligence and getting the property to close. And that will be coming out in two weeks. I also am a very active member in the Invest Her community. And we have our first ever summit on June 12th. We have almost 100 people already registered for the event. We have an incredible line of speakers. 
spots are still available for anyone who wants to sponsor. The investor community, just to speak a little bit about it, it's a women's community for real estate investors who want to live life on their own terms. Mm -hmm. And we support each other in achieving financial freedom. There's a lot of free content and free meetups along the way, but this just happens to be our first ever summit on June 12th. So I'd like to uh, encourage anyone to come. I know it's a women's community, but at every single event that I run, because I run a subgroup meetup, uh, we always have men at our events. They love the content that's being shared. It's a very welcoming environment. So anyone is welcome to join. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ashley. And you know, to all our listeners, thank you again for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time. And I hope this brought a lot of value to you. And remember, the best advice only comes when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I want to ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this podcast is out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating review. I would be extremely grateful. Also, I want to hear from you guys. So I want to hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn, send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you.